Welcome to the GravityDAO podcast. My name is Rick, and in today's interview, I was joined by the team at Politea. Peter, Matisse, and Josh all have incredibly insightful opinions and have gone on a quest to look at ways in which they can most efficiently enable these global decentralized communities to coordinate. If you're looking to get deep into DAO thought leadership, this was definitely the episode for you as we cover everything ranging from the history of decentralized organizations from city states, all the ways looking at things like the internet and seeing how it promised to democratize and decentralize global information, but in many ways has failed to live up to that ethos. If you like this content, make sure you take a second to like, follow, and subscribe. And I also really appreciate all three of these guys' time. So if you get a second, make sure to follow them on Twitter. I'll other information can be found in the show notes. That's all from me. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hey, on the Gravity Out podcast, I am pleased to be joined by the team from Politea. They're building DAO governance tooling. Each of these individuals all have uh, incredibly well thought out opinions on the governance space, very passionate about decentralization, enabling decentralized communities. And um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So gentlemen, if you mind just quickly introducing yourselves, give a little bit about your background and uh, we can hop into the conversation from there. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so I study physics and philosophy at Yale. Um, I'm also a DAO researcher at Six Man Ventures, uh, in addition to founding Politea. So spend all my time thinking about DAOs. Um, prior to that, I was at Matrix Capital Management doing uh, long short on Terra uh, and other Cosmos ecosystems. Um, and then prior to that, I, I had a background in physics and biology academia. So yeah. A fellow Matisse. lunatic. Rest in peace. Yes. <laughs> Rest in peace. <laughs> For real. Oh, man. We can go around the circle, so Matisse, you can you can get up next. Yeah, hey, so I kind of have like a political theory background, so I'm finishing up my um, MA in political theory at Yale, and my specialty within that is institutional design. So most of my background is actually in kind of real-world institutional design experiments. So I work with like China and France on some experiments with deliberate, the deliberative democracy, lotocracy, and the overarching aim of my research was to kind of understand and quantify the conditions under which good deliberation occurs. Um, and how to measure good deliberation. And about a year ago, I kind of turned that focus to the to the Web3 space. And I, I work as a lead researcher at NYU's Metaverse Center, where I kind of lead their, their governance research team on, on DAOs, but also more broadly. Uh, and I also work at Bismarck Analysis, which is a kind of consulting firm that deals with governance issues as well. Very cool. I didn't know NYU had a governance or a Metaverse Research Center. That's interesting. It was launched about like three months ago, so it's very new. Yeah. Huh. Uh, that's awesome. And then Josh, you mind quickly introducing yourself as well? Yeah. So my name is Josh. Just graduated from Yale Econ and Math. My background is working with big data in the context of spatial economics. So um, basically like modeling why people make decisions about where to live, how corporations make decisions on how to price rents, for instance, in the context of market concentration and monopoly power. Um, and on applied mechanisms design, helping people basically allocate seats at schools according to social policies. So basically a lot of work on making people's choices tractable and optimizing for them, which is obviously a skill set that I'm excited to bring to the Web3 world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the the very broad and diverse background that each of you bring in terms of your, your, your studies and um, where you've come from. I think bringing all of that is very applicable to the governance world and uh, trying to enable all these communities because we have all these questions and, and ways in which is the, the most efficient form to organize everything. Um, but nobody really knows in terms of the long-term effects of, of how these things play out. Um, and so 
having having the ability to model some of these issues and help build the institutions that you know, Matisse is doing, looking at philosophical problems that Peter's doing. I think I think it's a really just great. Um, a great, great, diverse set of skills, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so I want to ask you guys now, because it, it is a very niche area to be focusing on talking about these decentralized governance proposal communities, whatever, whatever you want to label them as. There's just so much to it. Why did you go down the governance route? Uh, I know you've all mentioned that on Twitter, you've all been involved in, in very different sorts of ventures or, or your interests, as we just learned. So what brought you down the crypto web three rabbit hole um what was it that said yeah i want to focus on this specific area and potentially come up with solutions to help uh enable others sure i mean i, I can speak for myself i think peter is probably the one the one of us who was there the earliest um i think kind of josh and i came later as far as i was concerned like one of the key topics i'm obsessed about is like you know um you have evolutions of like modes of human coordination and you can like map them out over time. So you can think, you know, the, the Greek city-state, um, the empire, um, you know, all these things. Um, and so you can think of the 20th century corporation, the corporation more broadly as a new frontier of human governance. And so the question for me is, you know, what's the next one? And DAO seemed to me to be a kind of very promising answer to that question. Um, and I thought of DAOs as like the programmable nature, the wealth of data, the global access to talent. There seem to be a lot of characteristics that, that would be interesting from political theory perspective, from institutional design perspective. And yet there seem to be a lot of like untapped potential with basically a handful of academics doing very abstract research, tr not translating it at all into anything kind of practical. Um, and so that that's certainly how I, I ended up there. Um, but perhaps uh, the other two have more interesting stories to share. Yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, I think the sort of basic answer is that, you know, I was working on, on DAO, DAO kind of governance stuff for a second, but um, I mean, we were all, we were all going to college together. And so like, I, I don't know, I just, um, I saw this problem of like uh, DAO governance and I'm like, I wonder how we can sort of apply mathematical methods to it. And so I was sitting down with Josh in the dining hall one day uh, and just kind of talking about, you know, how we could simulate sort of systems of governance and sort of do you know, intensive modeling on systems of governance and just the, the sort of mathematical basis of that. And I think probably like three or four days later, after we had our first conversation about that, Beanstalk got hacked. And so mm -hmm. it was like a, it was like a, holy shit, DAOs are like really, really bad. Uh, like not just from a, uh, an efficiency point of view, but also a safety point of view. And so that was like $180 million or something on, on Beanstalk. Um, that's like a lot of money. And so, uh, seeing that was uh, was pretty profound, and so I think we we really put the pedal to the metal after that, and, um, and then uh, we were all part of the same debate society together. But uh, Josh can talk about that, I think. But uh, yeah, anyway, it was it was a it was a it was a bit of a crazy time, and it still is a crazy time with all the recent stuff. So anyway, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll <clears throat> close out this kind of. Uh theme in the context of maybe what we're talking about at our philosophical debate society, right? So at a very high level, like the prop, one of the problems of political philosophy is helping people to coordinate. Um, and from my perspective, taking like grad mechanism design classes, one of the common themes that just keeps getting addressed is that information allows for more efficient collaboration, right? So when people don't know a lot about each other, um, they have to collaborate less efficiently. Sometimes they can't collaborate at all. So think about like credit scores, helping people get credit. Um, in terms of working together, a stranger across the world 
might be difficult uh, to bring on as a partner for a project if you know nothing about them. The great thing about DAOs and Web3 is that they make a lot more information available because everything's on the blockchain. So trustless and available. And from our perspective, we thought there'd be a lot of value to add uh, in the world through DAOs by basically opening up a lot of opportunities in this way that weren't there from before. So Matisse and I were talking throughout the year about how a lot of the problems our society is dealing with relate to people not being able to collaborate, people not being able to address big problems. And I think that's why we're really excited about this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you guys for sharing that information and looking at, uh, as Matisse was mentioning, the evolution of institutions and seeing how these uh, groups form and then eventually have to try to find ways to collaborate. Uh, I think we saw with the earlier versions of DAOs or maybe the after effects, of the earlier versions of DAOs where they had all of these groups and all these uh, stakeholders uh, really no great way at organizing and, and finding a conducive way to bring everyone together. Um, and so it either becomes anarchy where everyone has an opinion, it's breaking down, or it's become so bureaucratic in terms of these pods that they've created. And I have to go through all these meetings that it's essentially slower than or uh, equally as inefficient as a lot of the current systems we see in, in you know, governments and um, other, other institutions trying to tackle some of the major problems in the world today. So uh, I, think, I think that's a great point. And it's also cool seeing that evolution through all of you and uh, how you all met through Debate Society and, and then <laughs> talking on the lunch table about this because, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just how good ideas come together. Um, I also want to ask you guys, because you're all on the, you were on campus, and, and Josh, congratulations on graduating recently, by the way. Uh, I know you mentioned that. But um, you guys you guys were all, all of it on the Yale College campus, um, and decentralization, at least when, in the courses I was ever taking, um, never really was a topic that came up, or, or I never really had a chance to ever explore something of this nature. And so I'm curious, curious first off to hear what decentralized means to each of you. Um, but then I'm also a little, uh, I'm also curious to understand a bit more about uh, if you've ever shared these ideas, maybe in class or to any of your professors, uh, and what, what's the reaction like in a university or academic setting to um, the ideas of decentralization or DAOs or Web3? What do people say about this on college campuses? Because me personally, I wasn't on campus for basically my entire junior and senior year because of COVID. So I never really ever heard anything about the metaverse on a, in an academic setting. I want to know how you guys have seen that uh, play out. Uh, yeah, for sure. So this is kind of like a, a two-part answer because, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, how, I think, I think, you know, how Web3 and decentralization is addressed generally uh, at Yale, you know, I'll, I will take this time to fully say that uh, Yale is leaps and bounds behind uh, the sort of equivalent schools in sort of Web3 space. Um, so that is to say, like, if you, if you really say that you're involved with cryptocurrencies, if you're involved with Web3, if you're involved with DAOs, um, you're 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 going to be actively like kind of dissuaded from doing so um mm. the infrastructure on campus is a joke and the professors are extremely uh unwilling to help out and so that's been my experience that being said the students uh themselves like individually uh are really really passionate about what they do so uh through that through conversations with josh matisse i've had a lot of time to sort of develop um a comprehensive understanding of these core principles of, of what would make Web3 um, sort of really special. Um, and to that point, uh, to the second question of kind of what decentralizes, uh, decentralization means to me, um, I, I think it's genuinely like um, a false ideal that 
uh, sort of DAOs have been pursuing for way too long. Um, it's been six years since the first DAO was released. And ever since we've sort of been following in this cultural vision of decentralization as um, this sort of inherent link between decentralization and egalitarian democracies. Um, when in reality, we've seen every single technological development, every single cultural development since then, try to implicitly diverge from the original vision of what a DAO is. Um, and so, like, for example, right, Orca pods or um, sub DAOs, these are all kind of concepts that allude to hierarchies without saying the word hierarchy, because hierarchy is usually orthogonal to decentralization. And so I genuinely believe in the past six years, we've been stunted, our growth uh, of digital organizations like DAOs has been stunted by this concept of decentralization. Um, we can achieve all the tangible first principles benefits of what that word entails through uh, similar kind of buzzwords like permissionless access, um, you know, programmatic execution, all these other core attributes that actually mean something. Uh, whereas decentralization is more of an umbrella term that has really, in, in my opinion, uh, held us back. And, you know, Matisse and Josh can really elaborate on that more sort of eloquently. Um, but that's really kind of our viewpoint on the matter. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, perhaps I can, I can jump in to, to defend Yale just a, t a tiny bit. So it's it's certainly true that the kind of infrastructure on campus is not present. And it's also true that you'd be hard pressed to find any class where this kind of thing is explicitly mentioned. Although I think one of Josh's mentors at Yale in the economics department was probably one of the only ones who actually cares about this stuff. But I will say, I think in, in political theory and political science, political theory, history, which are the disciplines I spend most time, most time on in college, um, you do get a lot of kind of indirect teachings that are relevant to thinking about decentralization. So you an example, um, Paul Kennedy, who's a kind of legendary professor of history at Yale, wrote this book called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And it's a book, it's a kind of macro history book where he walks through thousands of years of history across space and time and tries to understand kind of what makes for greatness in the long run. And one of the, his key arguments about how Europe became so ahead of China at some point during the Renaissance, despite the fact that before China was ahead across the board, is about the decentralized nature of Renaissance city-states, right? So the idea that Renaissance city-states were these kind of mosaic of very small, very dynamic organizations competing with each other in this kind of Darwinian environment. And that if you think about a city like Florence in the Renaissance, you know, it's super tiny in terms of population, and yet it produced, you know, more great artists, philosophers, um, you name it, than, than, than countries, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 times its size. And so there is something that you, get, you can learn about when you study the Renaissance, when you study history with these professors at Yale, like Paul Kennedy, which is that, that decentralization kind of empowers creativity or, or empowers dynamism, institutional dynamism, uh, in a way that few other few other things can and the same thing can be said mm. of greek city-states and that kind of thing. so you have a lot of like indirect learning that is possible even though direct learning is virtually non-existent and another thing i will say when it comes to the history of technology is also one of the great paradoxes i think that you see um from the earliest technological innovations that every time there is a kind of like promise of decentralization and the opposite seems to happen in practice so you think about like the printing press when the printing press was first introduced by you know gutenberg the idea was like Oh yeah, we're gonna like be able to decentralize knowledge. 
it's no longer going to be in the heads of the Vatican or something like this. What actually ends up happening is that the printing press facilitates the rise of the first administrative states. And so it facilitates the rise of like super concentrated bureaucracies because certain, suddenly they can coordinate their actions at scale thanks to all these like written records. And so, and this is a pattern that you see, you know, up to the internet. I mean, the internet is the other obvious ones where obviously, you know, we're meant to get decentralization, then we got Web 2 instead. Um, and so I think that there is a danger that Web 3 goes down the same route. You know, a lot of the time you look at most DAOs, particularly most successful DAOs, everyone knows that DAOs in name only, or in practice, they're mm. kind of controlled by a handful of actors who act as a kind of de facto, like, you know, board of directors that's not so dissimilar to C corporations. And part of the reason why we're working on DAO governance is to find a way to, you know, make DAOs escape from what seem at the moment to be inescapable trade-offs. So right now it seems like, you know, either you have this like kind of very anarchic, uh, granted, you know, more egalitarian, more kind of quote-unquote decentralized models, but so inefficient, so unsafe, and so anarchic that they can't get anything done. Or you have things that are kind of, you know, as centralized as C corporations and fail to kind of deliver on one of the core premises and promises of decentralization, which is to kind of harness the wisdom of the crowd. Right. At, the, at the basic level, one of the ideas with DAOs is that, look, you have access to this global talent pool that can be coordinated thanks to a simple coding architecture. And thanks to this, you can like harness the best ideas at scale in a decentralized way. And so at, le at least for me, again, because my kind of core intellectual interest is in how kind of the best ideas win, right? the, 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 how, how deliberation occurs at its best. I, when I think of decentralization, I don't think so much uh, about, you know, how power is distributed or something like this, but more like how ideas evolve, with the, evolve in which structures they evolve. Mm -hmm. So sorry, that was, that was already very long, so... No, that was great. Yeah, and, and Rick, maybe I could put a bit of edge on that from a, like an economics perspective. Yeah, go for it. Um, so yeah, if, if, if I had to like kind of boil down what decentralization is about, um, it's about distributing power and action and then having rich information flows. So if you think of like a top-down corporation, right, a lot of the information flows uh, almost according to like a di directed acyclic graph, right, it goes down um, and there's a little bit of flow up, but it's kind of limited. For me, in terms of inf information, decentralization is all about having really rich <coughs> information networks such that like everybody is sharing everything they know, right? Because that allows for better decision-making as long as that information is harnessed. So going back to what Matisse mentioned, the second part is basically distributing action um, and decision-making and choice across all of the humans in your system. So if you look at the top-down model, um, the guy at the top makes one decision and then within a smaller scope, you get other decision-makers, right? Everybody kind of has a little arena where they're like the king of, of their decision-making scope. Um, in decentralization, you're basically taking uh, your decision-making process and distributing it across all of the humans in the system um, and basically just guiding them through this economic incentive vector field, right? So why is this like important? Well, like Jefferson and de Tocqueville, when they first saw America, right, they said like, wow, um, democracy works really well here. Everybody kind of uh, participates in the governing process. What made that possible? Well, according to them, it was our culture and especially like some of the norms that were attached to the religion that people had, right? So you had this kind of religious vector field through which people's uh, preferences and choices flowed that allowed for decentralization to work. Um, you see something similar in like the West among ranchers, 
mm-hmm. in like order without law. If anybody want, has you know read that book, that's a great look at like how anarchy works when you have strong norms. Um, one of the problems with the 21st century, or one of the opportunities, depending on how you look at it, is that we don't have like a shared set of norms anymore, right? We don't all follow the, the same small religion, for instance. Um, and so I think from a technological perspective, decentralization is something you achieve when people act kind of uh, according to this Darwinian selection in the context of a vector field. Here, we're not going to have culture or norms to provide that, those incentives. Um, we're going to use formal systems, right? And so the next step is to go from decentralization as something that relies on uh, like cultural homogeneity and the same norms to decentralization as something that can be enabled by technology, right? And that allows for that, that, that really huge value add that you get from opening up more information and distributing your decision-making across all the brains of your human system. Uh, so that's kind of how I look at it. And in terms mm-hmm. of Yale, um, I will say like Yale has always been more theoretical, right? And I think that's kind of the tack it takes on Web3 and uh, like crypto, for instance. So I had a lot of professors, Philip Strack, for instance, um, he was a mentor of me. He uh, wrote Bitcoin, an axiomatic approach and a possibility theory theorem, right? And a lot of people have been doing mechanism design in this space. The approach they take is very like long term, right? So they want to mm-hmm. think of, of Bitcoin as an opportunity to coordinate people, not as like a way to you know achieve XYZ application. Um, so I think that we don't have a lot of like, you know, startup uh, movement on campus, for instance, but there are people thinking about the space and I think thinking about it in a really productive way. And in the long run, you know, that will add a lot of value, even if you're not seeing it in like short run IPOs, for instance. Hmm. Yeah. So there was a ton of information there to break down, but um, just starting off there with, with the whole Yale, you're saying it's more theoretical and that you have, you do have some professors that are um, actively encouraging it. You also have a lot of professors that are not very interested in it and that you're seeing more uh, student-led initiative, which I think honestly is is not terribly surprising. I, I, I would assume that it, it tends to be younger audiences who are more interested in this, in this sort of thing. Um, and I know a lot of professors tend to be a little bit more on the older side. Not all of them, not all of them. Just, <laughs> just want to point that out. But um, And then Mat- Matisse's point about the Renaissance and looking at how those down there in Italy, for example, um, and how they were able then to compete with China uh, due to more of a decentralized method, even though these were tiny, tiny communities and populations. I think that's a very interesting point. Um, not an argument I've heard very often, but uh, certainly something that uh, bringing the whole macro history um, side to all of this. And then then to Josh's points there as well, looking at uh, more, more of how this boils down economically. Um, yeah, it, it all comes down to this idea here that, um, once again, it's how are we going to make this uh, not anarchic, but... But more, more so, this this very, this this global organization, this global community, this global group, whatever you want to call it. How do you get them to share some sort of cultural agreement and bring them together? And it sounds like source code is probably the most efficient method because, once again, if I'm on, uh, if I'm in Eastern Standard Time and somebody's uh, halfway across the world, twelve hours ahead, and they speak an entirely different language, and we agree on nothing in terms of either religion or politics or whatever. Um, you're going to need something to somehow bring us together, and that's probably going to be found in some sort of transparent uh, code, or I guess in a way you could call it a constitution, or um, however you want want to describe that. Uh, and so I, we we have touched upon this a little bit, and we were speaking about how DAOs have strayed almost from that original vision. Um, so 
if you guys just quickly potentially mind recapping some of what you mentioned, but what do you see as the most pressing issues in a DAO? And then if you can then move into what you think a successful form of a DAO might look like. So you take the, the negatives that we're seeing now, what do you think the biggest issues are? And then you want to go into maybe what is your vision of um, success for a decentralized organization? Yeah, I think uh, I'll start it off just like with what I've observed sort of... Um, I, I think that the the most pressing issue right now can be boiled down to complex deliberation. So uh, having the crowd or whoever the governing body is uh, make complex but good decisions, um, really calculate out what the impacts of uh, their sort of actions are, uh, is a really profoundly hard problem. Um, so we see this in things like Merit Circle, in things like Soland, um, even in things like uh, sort of Lido, um, unfortunately, we're seeing not only sort of people's ability to, to deliberate break down, we also see the structures that really underpin deliberation itself break down. And so, you know, that is definitely what I see as one of the largest, most pressing issues. And solving that is profoundly hard. Um, how we make decisions is not, you know, a simple process by any means. Um, and, you know, coordinating multiple actors to make good decisions is even harder. Um, so that's what I see as like one of the most profound problems of, of, of what DAO governance is. Um, and in terms of, you know, what I see it actually being good at in the long term is essentially, as, as uh, Josh, I think, mentioned really briefly, is um, the programmatic structure of, of, of DAOs. And so as we see technologies like Solvent Tokens um, evolve and sort of dynamic governance uh, evolve, uh, we're going to see higher throughput of sort of uh, actual human coordination. And so solving this tough problem is, is well, it's tough, um, but it's going to be worth it in terms of the actual output that we can actually produce in a digital context. Um, because as we sort of map out the space of what is possible within the digital deliberative context, um, we can actually better understand what, uh, you know, use cases DAS will succeed at. Um, but, you know, again, Josh and Matisse, feel free to expand. But, uh, that's what I see as the sort of biggest, um, you know, mm -hmm. cases of DAOs right now. Yeah, so I, I think one of the problems is recognizing expertise. So sharing information about who knows what and who's qualified or most capable of making good decisions. Um, so getting that information out there and then incorporating that information into a decision flow. Right. So, for instance, if you have a DAO that's making a decision on what, like how it should liquidate its Ethereum, um, that's an investment decision. That's not something that you probably want just some rando who maybe is awesome on like the art side of your DAO, right? Um, like calling the shots on. And so, I think one of the like next steps for DAOs is going to be formalizing a system wherein people's capabilities and what they bring to the table is recognized and then um, incorporate in the decision-making process. So what that might look like is like whenever you get a treasury proposal, um, people who have like SBTs or NFTs that kind of concord with, it, with that decision-making process, right? So maybe they're really good on the technical side, maybe they have a lot of experience with treasuries, they get more of a say. Um, that way you can make some really wise decisions um, and you don't drop the ball in the way that maybe we saw with LIDA recently. So mm. they probably should have liquidated a lot of their Ethereum early on, but not everybody in the decision-making process is a liquidation or a, a finance expert. And so it didn't happen. I mean, yeah, the next step is definitely like recognize the information. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's much to add to that. The only thing I will say is that uh, part of the, re like even if DAOs were capable of recognizing who the right experts are, there would also be a question of when to empower them and under which circumstances to empower them. Because I mean, that's one of the basic things in political science is that you have this whole empirical literature on the fact that, you know, in certain sets of circumstances, and when it comes to certain issues, having like an assembly of random, a small assembly of randomly selected citizens actually like beats experts, right? And there are other circumstances where the opposite is the case, right? You can think of something like a pandemic, for instance, in, as a circumstance in which you might want to uh, empower experts. Although even there, a lot of people felt like we empowered experts a little too much. Um, and so, and so I, th I think one of the questions for the DAOs is also to have the kind of analytics required, and frankly, that's one of the things we're working on, but just the analytics required to understand the social situation in a kind of in-depth way, so as to know like when to um, empower experts, mm -hmm. when to empower the crowd, which segments of the crowd, like who has contributed best to, to deliberation, like in the long run and this sort of thing. So, so all of that I think is extremely important, just have better understanding of the social landscape to understand one, when to do what, um, and not just like you know, who to empower. Um, the last thing I will say when it comes to, uh, you know, one of the things that DAOs could do in the very long run that I'm very excited about is, you know, a lot of us, I mean, we've talked about this with, with Josh and Peter, um, it's kind of crazy in a way to think that DAOs are that popular when they have only been introduced in countries where they are the least useful. Um, so if you think about like the most obvious use case of a DAO, like if you live in a country where there is no rule of law, we can't trust like official laws in the books, you can't trust the official like bylaws of companies because that paper thin. Having a programmatic architecture that guarantees like full transparency and that is predictable is like hugely valuable in a way that it really isn't in the United States. Um, and so actually like one of the things that like you could foresee in the long run is DAOs almost fulfilling kind of, you know, regime functions or in, in, in important social roles in countries where other kinds of organizations are just like not as efficient. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the big kind of bullish theses we have on DAOs, which is like, it's almost incredible. There is so much money and so much momentum around DAOs when one, they're so inefficient at the moment. And two, they've only been introduced in the countries where they're the least useful. Hmm. And so that's one of the things, I mean, we try to be in touch with, you know, that projects like Afropolitan, uh, and there's a guy called Alpha Barry, who's working on a lot of projects to kind of introduce Web3 and DAOs in particular to Africa. Um, uh, one of our partners is, is called Fraction Ventures, and they're a, a Japan-based um, DAO incubator um, that is working with introducing like the space to Asia, China as well, and sort of thing. I think the regional argument here on what DAOs could do in the very long run and what a DAO or what a very successful DAO could look like in the very long run, well, you could imagine DAOs in these countries performing functions that no other actor can. Um, mm -hmm. That I think is pretty exciting. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting contrast you guys mentioned there with your answers, and that is it's great to enable people to do things, but there's also a madness in crowds, and it's always great to enable experts to do something because they have dedicated hours upon hours to a craft or a subject, yet they don't always make the right decisions, and just because you have uh, a certain expertise in a field doesn't mean that you are the be-all, end-all. Uh, and so you have to figure out, in the case of Lido there, um, who who's the best uh, to make that decision be be the people themselves or or people who have the um the knowledge and in, in more of a financial sector and then we've seen it in crypto for example and I've, i recently haven't have on this idea that there are no i mean we're still seeing it come out but there are no quote-unquote experts in crypto or web3 because we're still so young but people are delegating all this um 
information and people that they believed were the experts and you can look at uh organizations i don't want to get too detailed into it obviously but things like three hours capital where um you thought that these people were 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 the kind of the, the thought leaders and that they were going to be representative of the space and many people and the mainstream did take them as um the top dogs and uh they got called out <laughs> and um exposed pretty pretty terribly so uh, there, there has to be a balance there, and there's no, there's no correct answer in terms of who is best fit. There's, there's somewhere in the middle of that, and the question is, how do you figure out what's in that middle? And I think, I think Politea, um, Politea is trying to provide a solution to that. And I know you guys are building something called dynamic governance. I, I don't want to get you all bogged down too much into this, but if you just mind quickly giving an overview. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at heart, I think what we're trying to do is to provide data streams on the, the, the kind of social landscape of the DAO, the social dynamics um, that are kind of incomparably better to what's being offered in the status quo. So if you think about kind of most like DAO analytics platform right now, they do, they do give you information about, you know, okay, what have been the proposals recently, who are the top vote voters, blah, blah, blah. But there is no kind of, kind of systematic complex systems analysis of the DAO social structure. And essentially what we call dynamic governance is the idea that, uh, again, if DAOs were able to understand that kind of complex systems dynamic at every point in time, they would be able to kind of both anticipate crises like earlier on, but also they'd be able to kind of adapt their governance system to circumstances and knew like what to do, but also kind of when to do it. And so the kind of thing we're looking at, you know, as I said, we, we kind of you know, map out the deliberation space. We map out the behavior of people. We map out the associations. We map out how they've worked in that track record. Uh, in, in different DAOs, and we essentially try to come up with like systematic ways to empower the right voices in the right moment. Now, of course, you know we're not going to tell DAOs how to govern by any stretch of the imagination, um, but our core value proposition is the idea that, uh, frankly, you know every political organization since the Greek city-state has had to face like complicated trade-offs, um, and the only way to face them is to understand when to do what. Um, and hopefully we can allow DAOs to, to have that, to kind of get the organizational agility that they should have by virtue of being um, an organization that's ruled by lines of code. Because, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, Peter and Josh have both touched on, but uh, DAOs, one of the, the, the core value propositions of Web3 is the idea that you have access to all this, like, wealth of data on people's behavior, on people's track record. And on the one hand, Web3 is more privacy-oriented, than a lot, of, uh, a lot of other organizations. But on the other, there is way more transparency on how the social organizations actually work. But right now, that's not something mm -hmm. that we think is harnessed to anywhere close to the fullest extent. Um, and we're trying, to, we're trying to harness that to, to not kind of put DAOs like on, just on the level of things like C-corporations, but actually kind of try to argue that they can achieve things that no other organization can because of that wealth of information. Um, yeah, so we've, we're moving along here. We've covered a lot of topics I wanted to get into. Um, but I think we should, we should start hopping into some of the wrapping up questions. Uh, and Matisse, you also touched upon this with your, with your, um, bit about the, uh, the printing press, the invention of the printing press and how that information ended up becoming more and more centralized. Look at the internet, for example, another obvious one where information and some of these structures became more and more centralized, despite the promise of, uh, democratizing a lot of, um, information or just access to information in general. So what would you guys then label as the largest threat to decentralization uh, today as we know it? Uh, perhaps more of the decentralization in DAOs. Do you think it's more of a complacency with just not not acting in the original vision? Um, 
go into detail with some of that. Yeah, I think I think uh, just to start it off, I think the biggest threat is just uh, this this whole project fizzling out. I mean, um, DAOs hold incredible first principles value propositions of you know global access and programmatic structuring and the ability to process data as an organization rather than an individual within an organization. Um, these are groundbreaking sort of uh, first principles differences between C corporations and DAOs. We don't see them being exploited though. If company or sorry, if if DAO founders and you know actual theorists in the in the field don't put them into practice and don't actually leverage the sort of theoretical basis of what a DAO is, we're going to see this fizzle out. We're we're constantly seeing failures that allude to this fizzling out, like these progressively more uh, frequent uh, DAO failures. Merit Circle, Soland, uh, just now Lido again. Um, these are happening at an increasing rate, and it's terrifying because if we see this happening and we don't see improvement, like radical improvement based on these first principles very quickly, um, it's very possible people will say, okay, the sort of value proposition of DAOs is, is just not there and it's not worth pursuing this any further. And we might see you know, a radical contraction um, because of these failures. And so in my opinion, just complacency on innovation of what a DAO is and sort of thinking a little bit outside of the box of what a DAO is, is really, uh, is really critical and if we don't see the sort of um you know if we don't see the sort of innovation that we're needing to see then then it very well might fizzle i mean i think mm. you know in short the sort of conservative approach to DAOs right now of okay we must stay within these guidelines of what is decentralized oh we must stay in the guidelines of this and this and basically we're being constrained by our own culture that surrounds DAOs, and so that's what i see as the biggest threat but um mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I, I kind of like some ideas that Peter just brought up and then uh, some that Matisse mentioned in so like specifically the extent to which a decentralized ecosystem is really ruled by Darwinian dynamics. And so, for instance, with printing, uh, that might start out as very decentralized. But if there's some kind of structural advantage to centralized actors, um, that's kind of the long term equilibrium that the systems can evolve into. Maybe it's the same thing with the Internet, the early Internet really had kind of like a wild west uh, feel to it right and there were these kind of like decentralized information flows uh people having blogs just yeah very kind of like small scale uh flat environment but there, there was an advantage for centralized actors and eventually that's kind of where this, the ecosystem trended right so i think the biggest danger to centralization is just not having a competitive advantage so decentralized organizations mm -hmm need to have an unfair advantage over centralized organizations in order for the space to remain that way. Otherwise, I fear that we're basically going to have a repeat of these other two paradigm shifts where there's a lot of free energy that's expended. Uh, a lot of like small decentralized actors eat that uh, expended energy for a little bit, but then eventually they get crushed by a few big players that emerge, whether that's the state in the case of the printing press or just like big information aggregators like social networks. Um, or media. So mm -hmm. how is that? How is that going to be enabled? Like, how do we give decentralized organizations, you know, that fighting chance, uh, the, the ability to win? I think really it is like figuring out the economics, figuring out the, the actual technology um, to allow for these, these key uh, potentials to be realized. That is greater information, 
um, and more human brain power behind your decision making. If you can figure out the economics of harnessing those two capabilities, decentralized organizations will win out and the system will stay that way. If you can't, I think it's basically inevitable that the system trends toward centralization, just as it always has in the past mm -hmm. when there wasn't some structural advantage. Yeah, and it's a bit terrifying because you hold up a mirror of Web3 to just take the internet. I mean, and it's the exact the Wild West at one point, and then things slowly became more and more centralized. Uh, Matisse, do you want to get an opinion in there as well? Yeah, just, I mean, one thing I think that I will stress is just like sheer user experience. Um, so, you know, like there was this thread recently on Twitter um, about uh, different ways to incorporate Web3 ideas into like existing companies like Amazon and so on. And people are kind of mocking the thread by saying that like, it might make them more efficient in some like abstract sense, but it also make them like absurdly more complicated. And I think, you know, there is something to this idea that like, if you think about like different like platforms, if a single actor controls all the platforms, it's way easier to create some kind of seamless experience from a user perspective. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of a lot of what you know, a lot of projects in the DAO space are about kind of creating just UX layers for you to have the impression, an almost kind of impression of centralization, mm -hmm. even if the underlying infrastructure is actually decentralized. Um, and so I think I think I think you can almost see this as well um, with with states to some degree, where you can think of like if you have a huge empire. Um, that, that says, you know, oh, we're going to provide you with, you know, water, basic services and so on. And you can just like go on with your lives, your, your life. It's like very easy, right, for you in terms of user experience. Whereas if you have a city state where everyone, you know, every citizen has to go to the assembly all the time. Every citizen has to care about political matters. The demands that are placed upon you as a participant in the ecosystem are significantly greater. And in politics, it might make sense. But in technology, it's kind of difficult to expect too much of the user experience. Um, and I think that part of the difficulty is that so many people who are who are originally attracted to to crypto to to web three to the DAO space have a certain kind of you know intellectual profiles. You know they tend to be maybe on the on the kind of weirder, nerdier um, end of the spectrum. No. And so just just th <laughs> just thinking about kind of basic basic you know seamless user experience and not just like raw efficiency maximization is something that I think we should do a, a little more of. Mm -hmm. As someone on the uh, the weirder, more eccentric side of things, yes, <laughs> you definitely are correct in that point. Um, we've had we've we've been going now for about forty two minutes, and I think we've covered almost every single area that I've ever had concern with or um, critiques that I've heard of decentralized organizations and enabling them in mass scale. Uh, and I, I really I really appreciate all of your thought leadership today so far. It's really just been refreshing to hear it and some of the. Um, and having brains behind this and, and, and trying to sit down and figure out the solutions to these issues because everyone can say it's easy that you know decentralized organizations will never work and it's 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 easy to point fingers at critiques and um shun it away but it's a one it's it's a whole other beast in itself to then actually tackle these problems and bring it to the forefront uh, i want to give you guys just one more chance here any topics or areas that you didn't get a chance to discuss or any information that you'd like to add on um and yeah, just a, a quick open mic here. If you want to say anything else, yeah, I think uh, I think we're good. But I mean, just yeah, to mirror your point, just keep believing in DAOs and like, I mean, think about it from a from a very first principles point of view. Like, you shouldn't everything in crypto. Like, don't just believe narratives. Mm -hmm. Don't believe hype. Just you know, go ahead and actually do the fucking math yourself. And that's that's about it. So yeah, stick to your guns. I love it.
to hear it. Uh, where should people guys and learn more? I just want to make sure that you get a chance to uh, plug your socials real quick. Uh, yeah, everyone's uh, everyone's on Twitter, so definitely follow uh, us on Twitter. Uh, mine is phbd with underscores under each letter. But uh, yeah, Josh and Matisse, I don't know what what's the best way to get in contact with you guys. Yeah, probably Twitter yeah, is on so... my end. Oh, sorry. Um, so mine is yeah, like... yeah, go ahead. So so mine is at mlbiton. So at mlbitton on Twitter, probably the best one. Yeah, you can catch me on Twitter as well. So at Josh. Pertel, P-U-R-T-E-L-L. Great. And uh, to anyone who's either listening or watching to this interview, I will have all this in the show notes down below. Guys, thank you again. I really enjoyed this great conversation and a lot of just information out there that I, I think people will enjoy. All, all, of the Dow, all the Dow heads will definitely sit down and uh, get a lot out of this. So thank you again.